Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church Owasso Sermon Podcast. Grace changes everything. When Jesus left the shadows of the heavy-eyed disciples the night after the Last Supper, and he descended into the hill, into the garden where the olive trees grew ancient, they were through the grove of trees out of the shadows of his disciples. Jesus bent his knee and he fell to the ground and he prayed to his father. And he said, Father, let this cup pass from me if it be your will. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. The example that Jesus sets for us whenever we face a problem that seems insurmountable is that Jesus himself, who is perfect and holy in every way, righteous, the true man, the second Adam, the Messiah who had come, he intentionally and purposefully escapes from the shadow of his friends who later fell asleep on him in order for him to come into the presence of his father in prayer. And like Jesus, many, many years before, 444 years before, perhaps, in 444 B.C., Nehemiah sees the ruined walls of his city, and he sees the graves of his fathers lying in ruins. And Nehemiah does something for us that is relatively profound because it's something that you and I have a hard time immediately doing whenever we face problems. Because you see, the truth of how you and I face problems today is that we almost instinctively resort to our own resourcefulness into what I will call secular ideologies to solve our problems. The truth of what this passage is trying to teach God's people is that we are to respond to the brokenness around us with prayer, faith, and action relying on God's grace to restore and to rebuild for His glory and the redemption of His people. There are three things that Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2 teach us about how we are to solve problems that we face. The first thing that we are to do is verse 4 of chapter 1, and again you see it in verse 4 of chapter 2. You recognize brokenness and you respond in prayer. First, you recognize brokenness, and you respond in prayer. Notice what the text says in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down, I wept, I mourned for days, I continued fasting and praying. In other words, he was praying the whole time. He was fasting the whole time. He sat down because he was tired, worn out. He mourned. He was emotionally affected by the brokenness around him. The other day, we had to turn the news off in our house, if you've had this experience, because my kids just could not take more bad news. And, and Lauren was like, hey, turn that off. And I was kind of like, why? I want to hear what's going on in the course of the day. And I, with my heart and heart, I could sit there and listen to this news that was, frankly, extremely hard to listen to day after day after day. But my heart had grown so hard to it over the years that I didn't even recognize how hard it was on my kids. And one of the dangers that I recognized in that moment is that my heart is being shaped and transformed and affected 
by things that I don't really intend for it to have uh, such power over my heart, have with such ferocity. In other words, if you think about the way you spend your time over the course of the week, it trains you on how to respond to the brokenness and to the problems that you see in the world. If you were to take all the hours you spend perhaps in Bible study or at church, and then you were to compare it to the more than 30 hours that you are exposed either to what's on your phone through the ads or through what comes across the news, you tell me, what is discipling your heart more? The truth of God's Word and the promises that He's given to us or the secular ideologies that we implicitly take in by virtue of being members of the world's citizenship today. Now, I don't say that to make you feel bad. I just say to help make you aware. Because the truth is that we solve our problems not according to the promises that God's given us. We solve our problems based upon our own resourcefulness. An idol is something that the neighboring countries around Israel were constantly warned against. And even Israel was constantly warned against the idolatry of their heart. What is an idol? Trinity, please tell me. What is an idol? It is when you take a good thing and you raise it to a position of being an ultimate thing in your life. And an idol, when you believe an idol, it creates an ideology that you, in very many respects, follow as a religion. It has the same anthropological aspects, the same uh, senses of conversion. It has, for example, an ideology is a system of belief that begs your total allegiance. David Koisis, who's a writer who writes on ideologies, he writes on political ideologies in particular, and he writes that an ideology is anything in your life that becomes a totality of the way that you view the world. It has demands upon you, and it requires you to look through this particular ideology into everything else. And so let's think of examples in our own life, our ideologies. When I was growing up, there were three different things that you could be as an adult. You could be a lawyer, you could be a doctor, or you could be a businessman because the ideology in my home was that to be successful, there are one of three professions that you can choose and you should lean into those. And while it was never explicitly taught, it is so easy, isn't it, to think that the value of a human being, your sense of success and progress of what it means to be made in God's image is dependent upon what you do and how much you have. And that is an ideology that is robbing even us in this church of our community flourishing in ways that God intends. An ideology is something that you take out of creation and then you set above creation and then demand that all creation respond to it. Ideologies are, there's three characteristics of ideologies. They are, number one, they are reductionistic. That is, that they simplify things to be viewed only through one particular point of view. They're reductionistic. And because they're reductionistic, they take on religious characteristics and they demand your total allegiance. This is why self-help books work so effectively 
because they tried to convert you from one way to another. Oh my gosh, I found a totally new way of healthcare. I found a totally new way of investment. I found it. They work like ideologies. They demand your total allegiance. And thirdly, they are prescriptive. They tell you how to act. And when you act differently from the prescriptive method of these ideologies, you feel a sense of disingenuity. You feel a sense of betrayal against this way that you have adopted. And this, this is, for example, please don't email me, but this is, for example, why some of you lost friendships around COVID. This is why some of you lost friendships around the election. Because particular ideology begin to inform everything about their worldview, and we cannot see other gospel perspectives of certain things. But Nehemiah shows us how. He responds, he, he recognizes the brokenness, and he responds in prayer. And is it, is it this what our Savior did too, of course? Not just in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he did this when he was taken out into the wilderness, and he was given the arrayed might of the world, and Jesus prayed, and he quoted Scripture. He prayed. He, he went in a secluded area, and he spent time with the Lord, even though it was there that Satan tempted him. Or is this not what he did when he went to his friend Lazarus, and after his friend Lazarus was raised, he praised God. He went off and prayed. In the midst of the emotion of him weeping, he goes off and he prays. He says, Father, thank you that you have the power even over life itself. Or is this not what he does for you in John 17, when Jesus in the high priestly prayer, he prays for your unity, O Trinity, to be so beautiful that the watching world around you sees how you treat people and people stand amazed. It's possible. And so, Trinity, please check yourself that when you recognize the brokenness of the world, may it be our first response to go to him in prayer. That's what Nehemiah does. He says, oh, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him. And then, and then I love how he prays on sight with insight in chapter 2, verse 4, whenever the king, the king sees that he is downcast and the king says to him, what are you requesting? And so notice what he does. On the spot, it says, I love this line, it says, so I prayed to the God of heaven and I said. It could have been a moment that he prayed. But by default, Nehemiah went. And do you think that Nehemiah wasn't surrounded by secular ideologies? Give me a break. He was cupbearer to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. Not only are we to recognize the brokenness of the world and to respond in prayer, but we are to trust God's sovereignty and his providence. We are to trust God's sovereignty and his providence. When Nehemiah saw he had a problem that needed to be addressed, he prayed, and he also trusted in God's sovereignty and his providence because who was he? He was the second in command, just like Joseph, just like Daniel before him. He was the second in command. He was cupbearer to the king. And to be a cupbearer, to be an Israelite who was a cupbearer to the king was really something because that means that Cyrus, when he came to power, had to have recognized with this people group that now he had the authority over in Babylon. He saw Nehemiah, something about Nehemiah stood out, and he was chosen to be cupbearer of the king. It means a cupbearer was somebody who would have had impeccable etiquette. Nehemiah was undoubtedly probably very handsome, or else he wouldn't be allowed to be in the presence of the king so often. 
Nehemiah was an ancient sommelier or a wine selector. Nehemiah was able to know the ways of the world to pick good wines for the king. He was the bearer of the cup that went to the lips of the king, which means at least Nehemiah was the equivalent of a master sommelier. And today there's only 269 of them in the world. And Nehemiah in the ancient world would have probably been only one or two people who was able to assess the wines and determine whether or not they were fit for the king or not, which also means that he exposed himself to danger because he drank what the king drank before the king drank it. And if it was poison, then Nehemiah was the one who took the poison. Not only that, but Nehemiah would have been one of the most intimate confidants of the king. Nehemiah was kind of like the the chief of staff. He would have been the ones who, he was the gatekeeper to who got to see the king. And so in the midst of this position that Nehemiah had, he trusted in God's sovereignty and in God's providence to put him in the position that he put him in. And the truth is that to follow God, to recognize his brokenness and to respond in prayer and to trust his his sovereignty and his providence in your life, to lead the life that God has called you to lead. He doesn't require you to be anywhere else except where you are right now. You don't need another dollar. You don't need another Bible study. You don't need another trinket in order for you to follow Christ right where you are. Did you know that? If I can only, when the kids leave the house, one day, someday, Friends, those are lies from the evil one. He has gifted you and he has equipped you in the season of your life to serve him now. And I don't mean when I say serve him, I don't mean that means you're a greeter at the church or you serve at Trinity or you volunteer for things beyond your capacity. I mean that you recognize that God has given you gifts right where you are. Are you using them? The king sees Nehemiah. And he says, what do you want? And so Nehemiah, with incredible boldness, point number three, he glorifies God through leadership and vision. He glorifies God through leadership and vision. He's incredibly bold. He says to the king, it says that Nehemiah had never been sad in his presence, verse one of chapter two. Imagine that. Never let on that he had a bad day at work. And now the king, remember who Nehemiah is a confidant to, says, Nehemiah, it's okay. What's wrong? And Nehemiah, knowing that he could be put in prison and killed at a moment's notice, if he even looked at the king wrong, he had the chutzpah and he had the courage to say to the king, my people have been neglected and my city, my hometown has been left in ruins and I want to go rebuild it. In other words, I know you've worked really hard to get me to where I am, and I know that I have worked really hard to be in this position. But frankly, I want to quit. (laughs) Think about the courage that Nehemiah had. He goes to Jerusalem, and there, even despite Sanballat and Tobiah, who stand in opposition to him, Nehemiah gathers the elders there together, and he says, we're going to rebuild this wall. Remember, he rides in on a horse, and he goes around the city, and he arrives there at night. And notice it says he can't even get into the city because the walls are all broken down. And it says that the gates 
have been destroyed by fire. The gates have been destroyed by fire. It says it several times in Nehemiah 1 and 2. That is a picture of something being totally and utterly destroyed. The gates have been destroyed. They have literally been burned 70, more than 70 years prior by Nebuchadnezzar. And they still sit in the same place they sat whenever the Babylonians came and conquered Israel in 586 B.C. And Nehemiah says with boldness and courage, we're going to rebuild this wall. Friends, I want you to recognize that we live in a time when we also are surrounded by profound secular ideologies that are discipling us. What shapes your heart? And there are going to be opportunities for us in the coming months. We don't know where the war in the Middle East is going to go. We don't know where the election in 2024 is going to go. We don't know what's going to happen at work for you with your family. But think of these as opportunities to recognize the brokenness around us and to practice the spiritual disciplines of prayer. Can I just share with you very frankly a way to assess your prayer life? One of the ways you assess your prayer life is you measure how you pray in three different areas. How is it that I pray in the sanctuary? When I come to corporate worship, do I actually pray? And if you pray, oh, Jesus, help the preacher, he's dying up there, that's okay too. Do you pray for your brothers and sisters in the midst of corporate worship? Do you pray in the sanctuary? Secondly, do you pray in the living room? Like, I don't mean most of us pray in the kitchen before our meals, but do you pray in the living room? Do you pray for your family, as a family, in the living room? Do you, fathers, disciple your family by demonstrating what it means to recognize brokenness and to respond in prayer? Do you do that before your family? And do you pray not just in the sanctuary and in the living room, but do you pray in the closet? Do you pray alone? One of the questions we always ask, oftentimes we ask the young children who come to the Lord's table or are interested in coming to the table, is do you pray when mom and dad aren't around? And I would ask you the same question. Do you pray when other people aren't around? As God's people, we are the body of Christ and we follow the example of our Lord who was the one who he himself recognized the brokenness around him, and he first responded in prayer. And even when he didn't get the answer from his father that he prayed for, he trusted in God's sovereignty and providence. And he went to the cross for us. And there at the cross, didn't he demonstrate leadership and vision as he glorified God by becoming the sacrifice that you and I would never be sinful though we are. And it's in the true and better Nehemiah that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ that we see one who has responded perfectly in every way in prayer, who trusted perfectly in every time in God's sovereignty and in his providence, and who glorified God through his leadership and his vision so that you, right where you are this week, might be able to join me and your brothers and sisters at Trinity over the coming months before Advent and read the book of Nehemiah 
read it. And ask the Lord that you would have the kind of leadership and vision that the Lord has gifted you to have right where you are. Brothers and sisters, if you're here and you're still trying to fix your own problems with your secular ideologies, would you walk to this table in a moment with repentance and faith? Lord, would you reshape my heart, not based upon the secular ideologies of the world, but would you reshape my heart by the promises of Scripture? Because as Nehemiah prays in chapter 1, and you heard James read earlier, you are the faithful and steadfast covenantal God who's faithful to his promises. And he is indeed true. That is indeed true. Do you believe it? And if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, please hear the good news that you can't follow techniques and become right with God. You have to follow a person who is the Lord Jesus himself, who didn't just respond to the brokenness, but he entered into the brokenness. He didn't just pray in order for him to have insight. He prayed for you. He didn't just trust in God's sovereignty. He willingly went through the opposition of the cross for your sake. And there he glorified God by profound leadership and vision so that we as his people today, this week, might not be discipled by the secular ideologies of the world, but might be discipled and shaped and reformed and transformed by the promises of God. Amen. May it mark us. Let's pray together.